no longer evident. Okay? But one time, I had a growth spurt when I was a teenager. I was lying on the floor watching TV, and my mom had to step over my legs, and therefore, I was called lanky. Now, if you know the height of my mom, it is actually relative. Um, but maybe you know, you know, maybe you were the person that you know, was bringing in a tray of, of drinks into the family room, and you trip up, and forever in a day, you're the clumsy one. Yeah? Or one day, you just had a bad day, you came in, you snapped at someone and said, oh, goodness, <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's always grumpy. You get a name for yourself, because my heart goes out to Tommy the twin here. Thomas, or is there known as Doubting Thomas? He doubts once. I can imagine him sitting in heaven going, come on, guys, give me a break. I slipped up once, and you've called me that forever. You slip up once, you get a name for yourself. We have Doubting Thomas. Note, let's not judge him just too quickly. Let's not label this guy, Thomas Didymus, the twin, too quickly. Because I think we probably fall into that same camp. At some point in our lives, we've said things like, I'll believe it when I see it. It could be in relation to me doing the dishes, perhaps. But you might say, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. We all have that, I want to see evidential proof. Note that in these passages, these brilliant resurrection passages... I just realized I did this at the 9.15. I forgot that I've got a PowerPoint. Um, let's move this on. There we go. Sorry? You like the other one? Tough. Okay. <laughs> In these passages, they all needed some level of proof. They all were given some level of proof. Let's have a look at it. We have Mary who goes to the tomb and finds it open. Her assumption is that there are grave robbers involved. Okay? Until she meets Jesus. She runs to Simon, Peter, and John and said, they've taken the Lord away. Someone pinched the body. And they, don't believe her, they go running to the tomb. They go in, and in verse 9 it says, they hadn't believed that Jesus needed to rise from the dead. Although we get the hint that it's clicked for John. Certainly it says he saw and he believed. Then the disciples gather together in that room on that first Easter night. And they're terrified. They're worried that they're going to be next for the chopping block. And Jesus comes and stands amongst them. And he says, peace be with you. And then what does he do? Have a look. He shows them his hands and his side. They get the proof already. Jesus appears and shows him the hands and the sides. The same evidence that Thomas asks for in a bit. Then we have Thomas asking for that evidential proof. And this is before we get to someone like Saul, the enemy of the church, who has to have an encounter with the risen Jesus in order to become Paul, the evangelist to the Gentiles. So they all needed and were given some level of proof. So for some reason, Thomas isn't there. We could speculate whatever it is. But do you ever get that thing? No, you're telling someone a story, maybe a joke, and you're going, do you know, the other day, like, we were at this thing, and we're having this meal, and, you know, and he said, the porcupine smelled like lemons. <laughs> I guess you have to be there. And it's the same thing. The Lord is risen. Oh, you don't get that, Tom. Oh, I guess you have to be there. Thomas wasn't there. He didn't see it. He wanted to see it for himself. And in a real way, he says, I'll believe it when I see it. The need for proof, because in spite of whatever seems obvious for us and whatever explanation Jesus gave prior to the cross, they didn't expect the resurrection. They didn't expect Jesus to come back from the dead in that way. They did believe in the first century Judaism, they did believe that Jesus 
or that, that people rose from the dead. The resurrection would happen one day. They believed everyone would. But there was groups amongst there that, that didn't believe. Sorry, I've just gone too far. I'm rubbish with this PowerPoint today. <laughs> there were people, the Sadducees, didn't believe in the resurrection at all. So they didn't expect this to happen. The resurrection, frankly, was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous story they were sharing. I was talking with a few people um, the other day, and we were thinking about some of the beliefs of some of the sects that are out there, some of the kind of peripheral groups that have got some very strange beliefs. And the person I was speaking to was speaking a little bit derisorily, a bit mockingly. And I said, we need to hold back a little bit because we believe that a bloke walked on a sea. We believe that he made a big lunch for 5,000 people from someone's tuna sandwiches. We believe that he was dead and he came back to life again. This is ridiculous. It's crazy, the claims. But we've maybe become too familiar with them to realize just how radical these claims are. But the need for proof isn't removed from us. We still want to see evidence if someone makes a claim for something. That's the overflow from the thing called modernity. We want scientific fact to prove that something exists or something happened. But we're also living in a thing called post-modernity, which is even if someone gives us proof, we actually doubt that as well. We think they've got a hidden agenda, they're only telling half a story or whatever. We live in an age of skepticism, of doubt, and of questioning, don't we? Yeah, we, ha- we are encouraged to question everything, to question all authority. And so we have this very familiar character, doubting Thomas, who just seems to resonate with where we are today. I think we should try and rebrand Thomas, to re redeem his PR. Lisa and I did it a while ago. We did it about Paul, trying to rebrand, kind of, Biblical hero is rebranding incorporated. That's what we kind of called it. Because I think Thomas deserves a rebranding. The previous references to Thomas are these. First of all, it's mentioned here, he is one of the 12. He's one of those chosen few that Jesus has asked to be with him the entire three years of his ministry. He's seen the healings. He's seen the, the, the miracles. He's seen Jesus walking on the water. He's heard the intimate questions and answers and teachings of Jesus. He's been part of the 12. He also is one who commits to die with Jesus. It's easily overlooked. It's one verse in John chapter 11. Jesus is saying, I've got to have to go back to see um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus because Lazarus has fallen asleep. He knows going back to Judea is almost like a death sentence. They all know it. And Thomas pipes up, let's go and let's be prepared to die with him. That's Thomas. And later on, Jesus is talking about going to the Father. And the disciples, they're, all, they're doing their thick thing. And they're going, I don't know what he's talking about. And Thomas has the guts to say to Jesus, what do you mean? We don't know the way. That's in John 14, verse 5. Here is Thomas, who has been painted as a skeptic, a cynic, a doubter, a waverer, a little bit dodge. How about this? A retelling of Thomas. Here is Thomas, who is so pragmatic, so serious, and so committed to Jesus, who loves him too much to just rely on the stories of his friends. I'm not going to be duped by anything. I love this guy too much to fall for that. I want to know that he's alive myself. Did anyone fall for an April Fool's joke? Not that you're going to admit, obviously. Best one I heard was um, that we have to put our clocks forward an extra hour because it's a leap year. I didn't fall for it, but I thought it was quite a clever one. If anyone walks in an hour late, you'll know that they did fall for it. Thomas doesn't want to fall for a sick 
joke or a delusion. I have to see this for myself. Jesus means that much to me. Unless I see for myself. He doesn't want a second-hand faith. We go to verse 26. It says, a week later. Now, I love the bits in the Bible that, that are kind of, they jump over things. And I wonder what happened in between. So what happened that week? I don't think the disciples went, right, the script says, we have seen the Lord, exit stage right. I can imagine a week where they were revising that what happened, and talking about the story of Mary went to the tomb, and do you remember when he was crucified and he died, and, and then a couple of days, and they're re, re-going over the story. I imagine them a whole week of talking with Thomas, trying to convince him, actually, this really did happen. A week of remembering, trying to convince. I wonder if Thomas was doubting his doubts, going, I wonder if this could possibly be true. I wonder if the disciples were going, well, Thomas is questioning us. I wonder, did it really happen? Or are we just kind of having a whole delusion or something? I wonder whether they had a kind of first century version of the Alpha course, where they were going through the proofs of the resurrection with Thomas to try to convince him. But I think he was convinced enough that a week later, They meet together in the same room, locked doors through fear, and Thomas is there. His questions, his doubts, did not exclude him from the community of believers. Something really important for us to remember as church. People who question, people who doubt, people who go through a rough time and are finding it hard, are not excluded from the community of faith. So Thomas is there. Is he expectant? Is he hopeful? Is he doubtful? I imagine the other disciples are like, do you know that feeling if you bring um, a non-Christian friend to a church event and you're kind of going, I hope they come, I hope they come. They've come. Now I hope they meet Jesus. I hope they meet Jesus. Do you know that kind of tension? I can imagine the disciples are going, Thomas is here. Come on, Jesus. Can Can you just show him that we were right? Jesus appears and says, shalom, peace, wholeness to you. Then what does he do? He turns immediately to Thomas and remembers to do the PowerPoint. (laughs) He turns immediately to Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Did you notice something about what Jesus says? It's exactly the stipulations that Thomas asks for. Exactly. Thomas says, unless I put my finger in the holes, unless I see with my eyes his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So Jesus takes him out of his word and said, okay, put your finger here. See my hands. Look at my side. Put your hand in it. Exactly the stipulations that Thomas needed. And I wonder whether that tells us something about this encounter between Jesus and and Thomas. What Thomas saw wasn't the only thing that was overwhelming. It's what Thomas heard as well. What Thomas heard was Jesus saying to him, I was there when you said that. I know what you need. I know what you need. It's more than just giving a proof. It's a personalized proof that he needed. I don't know about you, if you read the stories whenever Jesus tells his disciples, stop doubting and believe. I don't know, sometimes I get the feeling that he sounds like a bit like a schoolmaster telling them off. I wonder whether he's actually smiling, going, I've proved to you. I've proved to you. But he doesn't let him off there. He gives him a challenge. He said, stop doubting 
and believe. And unfortunately, it's not a great translation of that word, um, doubting. And so we've taken that and we've labeled Tommy with it, okay? And actually, the better translation is stop being unbelieving. It's a continuous thing. Stop being unbelieving and be believing. Thomas, I don't think, took Jesus up on his offer. I don't think he went probing around. I think because he was too gobsmacked. And how do we know that? It's because he cries out this phrase, my Lord and my God. You, uh, you go to church long enough, you'll hear many sermons. Um, I'm sure you'll know that. And uh, as a preacher, I'm, I'm sad to say that I know for a fact that we forget lots of sermons that are preached to us. Don't we? Let's be honest, yeah? Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> there's one sermon I heard one Easter when I was a teenager at Christ Church Presbyterian from the Reverend Robin Quinn about Doubting Thomas. And it's one of those things that's seared in my memory ever since. So he pointed out that Doubting Thomas was the first person in the entirety of this gospel to directly address Jesus as God. The first one to call Jesus God. Yes, he'd been called Lord, Master, Rabbi. He'd been called Son of Man, Son of God. He'd been accused of blasphemy. He'd used terms himself that proclaimed who he was, his deity. But here is the first time a person has outright said, you are God. In a monotheistic, exclusive, protectionist culture where it was so tight to say that God was one, we have Thomas breaking out and saying, you are God. This is enormous. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. He accepts his worship. He accepts his worship. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I wonder whether we need to uh, rebrand him. Believing Thomas. Or maybe confessing Thomas. Because there's equal amount of evidence to say he was a confessor and a believer more than he was a doubter. And what Tommy did next. In response to this, he's present at the ascension of Jesus. When he hears the Great Commission, he's part of the church that experiences the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. Part of that early movement around the Middle East whenever Jesus' gospel is shared. And by tradition, pretty sound tradition, he went to Parthia and to India and shared the gospel there and planted the church there. There is a church of believers there, the community of, of Thomas. They're called Nazirs or something along those lines. The Nazarene people. And they are some of the oldest Christian congregations in the world that trace their line back to Thomas going to India. This is the legacy of doubting Thomas. This is the encounter with the beloved that made the difference with Thomas. And then an echo of that throwaway phrase that Thomas used to Jesus, I'm prepared to go to Jerusalem and die with you. Thomas ends up, according to tradition, being speared to death for the gospel and dying a martyr's death, announcing Jesus was risen from the dead. Doubting Thomas or believing Thomas? Jesus' response, I think, smilingly, if that's a correct adverb, he said, blessed are those who have believed but haven't seen. Blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. That's the people who were there and thereabouts that, that, that time and, and, and place who weren't part of the 12 but heard the story. 
They're the first readers of John's gospel who believed without seeing. This is us that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here's the poetry of John's gospel, the beauty of John's gospel. In verse 30 and 31, it was probably the original ending of John's gospel, like a first draft. It kind of tidies everything up. Chapter 21 is not an afterthought. It's not like an add-on by some bloke. It's part of the John tradition. John would have been behind it as well. But here is probably the original first draft ending. And, And it says, these things are written so that you will believe. That's the whole purpose. And it forms kind of bookends. It's like a clock with John chapter 1. John chapter 1 announces, here is the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and lived among us. And then the whole of the gospel happens. And then this bloke, Thomas, has added up all the clues and comes out with this statement, yes, you are the Lord. You are the Word. You are God. It's like a clock, which at 12 o'clock midnight, the two hands are together. Then a whole 12 hours goes past until they meet again. And when they meet again, Thomas says, you are my Lord, you are my God. This disciple cracks it. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh. Walking around with us, he lived, was crucified, was raised to life again. And this is why John says, I've written to tell you, to convince you that these are eyewitness testimonies. In reference to John, John, have you noticed he talks a few times about being first-hand witnesses? There's a man at the cross who says he saw Jesus' side being um, plunged with a spear. It says this man has seen it and testifies to it. We have John at the end of the gospel saying, I'm the one who saw all this and and testified to it. In 1 John chapter 1, the same person saying, we're telling you about what we saw with our eyes, what we touched with our hands. And then we also have in Luke, Luke's gospel at the beginning says, we have researched this. I've researched this to make sure these have come down from the first-hand people. Second Peter, Simon Peter writes about how we've not got invented stories. These are first-hand accounts. Eyewitness testimony was important then as it is now. And I wonder if John was writing as an eyewitness to perpetuate the story, the testimony of these first eyewitnesses. Because without that, we wouldn't know the story. We wouldn't know what happened if it wasn't for these eyewitnesses writing down their story. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. Blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. I think this is because Jesus, even there, is aware of the hurdle and of the challenge of believing something which is frankly pretty unbelievable without having seen it firsthand. He knows it will be dependent on the witness of these first eyewitnesses. I think Jesus is aware that those second-hand witnesses, us, we need a bigger faith than those who were able to touch him and see him themselves because the truth of the matter is doubt exists, doesn't it? Okay, I'm not convinced, and I think you're lying. Doubt exists, doesn't it? It just does in all walks of life. So let's not just get all religious. It doubt exists, okay? And it's got a negative reputation as well. When you think about doubt regarding faith, it sometimes brings ideas of of negativity, of of a lack of faith, of maybe a sense of, of weakness, of maybe even backsliding into the depths of hell itself. 
Maybe it's worrying about damaging your faith or the faith of other people if you talk about the questions that you have. Maybe it's a symptom of actually, was your, was your commitment to Christ really true after all? Or are you pretty unfaithful? Doubt breeds that. I know of um, a number of situations, but one in particular of, a, of a, a young person who was on a camp and they shared one of their doubts that they were having about their faith. And he was so relieved that he could tell me this because in his household and his background, they were told they weren't allowed to doubt. They weren't allowed to question. And he was shocked that he could actually share these things that were buried so deeply. So as we've tried to redeem Thomas's reputation, from doubting Thomas to believing Thomas, let's have a think about rebranding doubt. I want to think about the benefit of the doubt. I want to give doubt the benefit of the doubt. Um, I was reflecting on this, and I have to be honest, doubt, I've come to realize, has been a really familiar companion to me on my Christian journey. I don't know if that's the same with you. Maybe I am a heretic, I don't know. You're nodding, thanks, Lou. <laughs> I'm a heretic. <laughs> Maybe you identify with that as well. Maybe you've experienced similar things that I've experienced in my doubt in my, in my Christian life, doubting whether God actually exists at times, whether he's actually good, whether he, he has a plan that's working out, whether he loves me or not, whether my faith is real, whether I made a right commitment, whether the gospels are reliable, whether this is all just made up by some bloke with an extended April Fool's mentality. Those are some of the doubts that I've carried with me at different times. And I felt at times I've had to bury them. My worst time was when I was my first term at Durham. I went and left um, Belfast really confident in my faith. You could ask me any question and I would have an answer for you and knock you flat. I was, I was, I was sorted. I went to Durham pretty cocksure myself. And then God said, so how do you know I'm real? And I went, oh, how do you know these gospels are real? I went, well, okay, well, these answers used to be enough, but no, I'm not so sure. And bit by bit, doubt crept in and at the time, it was like hell on earth because my faith meant so much to me. I look back at it now and I'm so grateful to God for letting me address those things. Simple questions I couldn't answer because I don't think doubt is as negative as many may fear. In fact, I think we need to realize that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is not the opposite of faith. We get doubt confused with skepticism, cynicism. We get it confused with unbelief and we get it confused with apathy. Those are the enemies and the oppositions to faith. When we don't care about whether it's true or false. When we have decided whether before we even look at any kind of evidence or whatever, it's just wrong. Or cynicism, well, they're all making it up anyway. Or unbelief, I've decided it's just not for me. Those are the enemies of faith, not doubt. I was told by uh, Duncan Johnson this morning that um, it was Pascal said, you cannot have belief without doubt, and you can't have doubt without belief. Those are the opposition to faith. Doubt is the furnace in which faith is forged. It is the ground through which the plant of faith needs to push through in order to grow and gain its nutrients from. It is uh, the, 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 step, the stepping board, the springboard into the pool of faith. It is the decision that needs to be made at the crossroads junction. 
There must be a question of doubt for faith to be expressed. Otherwise, it's certainty or it's blind, unreflected acceptance. Those are the choices. And how many things in life are 100% certain? Okay, you can wax lyrical if you want. But actually, I was told once by someone who was really clever at university, they showed me how one plus one equals zero. I didn't know how they did it, how they did it, how they did it, they did it. But mathematically, they can do wondrous things like that. So how many things are 100% certain? Or maybe it's a blind, unreflected acceptance, which is great and fine until it doesn't work. I've got an example for you. Here's a chair. There's a lot of depth in these chairs, I have to say. I know they're not the most comfortable, but hey. What's a chair good for? Sitting, correct answer. Okay, so... You come along to a chair, and you sit on the chair. Success. Yes? Have you ever sat? You are sitting on a chair. You realize that. It's success. But you go and sit in the chair, and it has happened with these ones, and the chair collapses. Much hilarity ensues. So you stand up, dust yourself off, and go away again. You go, and you go to sit on another one. You immediately have a choice to make, and it's a choice of faith. Is this going to hold me or is it not? You look at all around, everyone else is sitting comfortably, so it should be all right. So you sit down and again, either it will hold your weight and it affirms your decision of faith or it collapses and you make an appointment with Weight Watchers. <laughs> we make faith choices all the time without reflecting on them. But actually, the place of a faith choice is the place of doubt. There has to be a question mark in order for you to exert faith because faith is a choice between options of believing or not believing. It's a matter of choice. A guy called Fowler has done a psychological thing about um, the stages of faith development in, in human beings from children right through to adults. And there's a really important time cognitively in the life of an adolescent. Okay, so if you're an adolescent... This, this is you guys, hopefully, because um, we'll have been through it. We may even be going through it now as a grown adult, 40, 50, 60-year-old. That at some point you have to question, doubt, and potentially reject the community story in which you've been brought up in, in order for you to accept it for yourself. You have to question, is this what I believe, in order for it to be yours? It may be in a massive crisis of faith, or it may be just, I have decided to follow the faith of my fathers and mothers. There's a point where we say, this is for me. There's a choice to be made. For some, it's a massive choice. For some, it's a very easy one. But that is the choice of faith. But there is a need for reasoned, reflected faith. An unreflected faith is a vulnerable faith. I've completely forgotten this PowerPoint, forgive me. Whenever I returned from Durham, I came here, and I was still rebuilding my faith bit by bit. And I became the youth minister here. And we started Accelerate, the youth group. And there was one verse that I based Accelerate on, because I wanted our young people to be equipped. And it's this one in First Peter. Sorry, yeah, First Peter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's a key verse because I said, have a reason, faith. Know what you believe and why you believe it because at some point it will be tested. It will be challenged. So have it thought through at the very least. 
We will never have 100% proof for matters of faith. It was Tennyson who said, um, said this, for nothing worth proving can be proven nor disproven. If something is outside the area of logic and even today within that, there is always a decision of faith of whether you accept it or not. We never have 100% proof. Otherwise, there's no need for faith. There's no need for free will and choice. But there's enough to make reasonable choices. That's the springboard of certainty that we have regarding faith. Because of what I went through, I studied quite a bit of things called apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith. Not because the Bible says so, but thinking about it rationally to people who would not accept the truth of the gospel. And let me really encourage you not to be frightened by that term apologetics, but to get yourself stuck into it, to know what you believe and why you believe it. Because people will ask you, and they'll ask you questions that maybe you can answer, but there'll be questions that maybe you won't. And you've got to not be rocked by that. I used an example, but I was talking to my boys yesterday about this, about the Da Vinci Code. Do you remember that came out a while ago? Biggest load of bunkum. <laughs> that was being spouted by Dan Brown about Jesus and Mary and the church. People swallowed that. Christians got worried about their faith because of some of the assertions he was making. We could blast that out of the water really easily with the facts of the gospel. You needed to know it, otherwise it was earth-shattering. But these apologetics aren't enough. They're springboards into the pool of faith. We have to be prepared to question and to doubt in order for us to own our faith and to make it deeper. David Kinnaman writes, I don't know if it's the quote there, yeah. I believe unexpressed doubt is one of the most powerful destroyers of faith. We need to be free to discuss this. I love the fact that Doubting Thomas, as we know him, was still part of the believing community. He was allowed to be there, to wrestle through this experience. It's not enough, just these apologetics. Before Thomas could make a choice of faith, first of all, there were facts. The empty tomb and the grave clothes. They were facts, solid facts you could go and look at. But it wasn't good enough. There was testimony, there were stories and experiences from the other disciples, which was very, very good. But not enough. The one thing Thomas needed, the one thing that many of us need, or have needed in the past, is not just to be convinced of the gospel, but to have a personal encounter with Jesus ourselves. To have a personal encounter with Jesus. So I don't know where you are, whether you are in a place of certainty and your faith is strong as it's ever been. Hallelujah, fantastic. Please be aware that our faith is in in, in the avenue of doubt. That's where it exists. That's where it grows. Don't be afraid if you are sitting here going, I've got questions that haven't got answers. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of asking questions that worry you or upset you thinking that you're going to be cast out of the fellowship of this church. You won't be because you will grow through them. There are lots of reasons to believe and to have our faith affirmed. It makes sense. It answers the questions of this world better than any other philosophy or theology around. It fits the the question's better than anything. But it won't make sense unless we meet the Lord Jesus. Maybe we won't see him standing there in front of us with his hands out wide, but we can experience him. 
And he, like he did with Thomas, knows what we need. And maybe if we encounter the beloved ourselves, we can truly cry out with a mixture of faith and with doubt, with a mixture of answers and with questions, we can cry out exactly what Thomas said, my Lord, my God. Amen.